As I mentioned earlier, Colin is on vacation, so we're very, very excited to have a very special guest uh, with us this morning. Um, Dr. Stephen Johnson is here, and some of you may know uh, Stephen and, and, and Gaina and, and their family as they have been visiting here for a little while. You may know him from ACU. Uh, he has spent many years there, both as a, a student and uh, on faculty there as, as one of the professors. Um, he has obtained a couple doctorates, very well versed in uh, theology and preaching and teaching. In fact, he was one of Colin's professors, and uh, so you can either blame him or thank him for, uh, for uh, Colin Packer. But we're, we're blessed to have uh, this family here. Uh, Gaina and Henry are here this morning. Uh, as well, and we're excited about the incredible work uh, that he is doing. He was recently brought here by ACU to become the new director of the ACU Dallas campus, which is in Addison, um, and you can ask him more about that, but that's an exciting venture that ACU is is developing here, and he is the new director of that, so his family has recently moved here, and so we're excited to have him here this morning. We're even more excited uh, that their family has decided to place membership here at Greenville Oaks and become a part of our family. He's going to be an incredible blessing uh, to us. His whole family is going to be an incredible blessing. Yes, definitely. So we're very excited that you are here this morning. Thank you for being here. Thank you for joining us in what God is doing here at Greenville Oaks. We look forward to getting to know you. John Mayer's Grammy Award-winning song has been around for a while. I'm, I'm guessing that most of you, most people in the room have heard this one before. Am I right? Uh, every time I hear it, it catches my attention. It stops me. There's something about the line, the lyric, the turn of the phrase, waiting on the world to change that grabs my attention. I think it's because it taps into a deep angst that something is not right. Live with that sense. It's sort of just beneath the surface of life as we move through it. Something is not quite right. As I gathered here this morning, first service, as I sit with you and participate in worship today as we move through this, as I listen to the prayers that are prayed and ways that you're sharing life together as God's family here, I sense that even in this moment for this church, there's this underlying sense, something's not quite right when you receive news like this church received last night. When even this morning as we gather here, we know that there's one, it's Mike, right? Mike, who's usually here, whose life hangs in the balance. We live with this deep sense of angst, sense of angst that something is not quite right. To juxtapose a contemporary musical artist, John Mayer, with a contemporary theologian, Paul Jones. Paul Jones says that really, if you look at Scripture and the rhythms of Scripture, and you think about our experiences of as people of of moving through life, that Really, our life with God swings in the balance between what he calls an obsessio. That's sort of the short form of the word we know as obsession. Sort of, he means by that a deep angst, a sense of something's not quite right. Obsessio on one side and an epiphania on the other. Epiphany. A revealing. A resolution to the obsessio that... That marks our lives, we live in the balance between those two things. Maybe especially these days, not only close to home for this family, but for all of us 
At this point in time, we have a sense that something is not quite right in the world. I mean, I don't know about you, but where's the next hit coming from? It's not a matter of if, but when, and where, and who. How can we gather, me and all my friends, in a place like this and come before God, but not have something beneath the surface pulsing that says, you know what, something is not quite right. John Mayer's song seems to tap into that, that all of us are waiting. Waiting for some resolution to that. It's our prayer, isn't it? In fact, it's the Bible's closing prayer. You know the Bible has a closing prayer. But in the end, after the story's been told in many voices and in many forms across many, many years that when the book comes to a close, we end with words, a word of prayer. We pray because at the center of our faith is this idea that God in Jesus has come to set the world right and that God has acted definitively in Jesus Christ to set the world right. That God's people have prayed for generations for God to break in, Emmanuel, God with us, and He came and He lived among us and He returned to the right hand of the Father and He's coming back again because the work that He definitively laid out for us in His life, in His death, in His resurrection is going to be brought to consummation, to fulfillment in the end, finally. And we're living in anticipation of that and so we pray these words from Revelation 22. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who's thirsty come and let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Amen. Me and all my friends say together, Amen. It's our prayer. It's our heart's longing. That in the midst of all that's undone and all that's broken and how it visits each of us, that God come and be among us and set the world right. There's something else I want you to notice about John Mayer's song this morning and the video that we watched together. Did you notice that against the backdrop of the angst, the brokenness, the, un, the, the undoneness, the yet put together nature of this world, that against the backdrop of that, there's the art. Did you notice that the art? There's the artist. There's the paint. There's the paper, there are markers, that bucket of markers, there's a canvas, there's spray paint to be applied across the backdrop of an urban landscape. There's the art. I think that's important because what do you do against that kind of brokenness? But you, you gather words and you gather images and you throw them against the undoneness and you imagine 
a world set right. That's what the artist does. The poet, with the poet's words, the musician, with the lyric, the artist, with the brush, with the pen, with the paint. Against the backdrop of that angst are words and images, the construction of a different reality, a different reality than the one we feel, the one we experience, the one that closes in around us so that we begin to be very, very anxious and sometimes very, very afraid. There's the art. I think Revelation is like that. It's not just that Revelation gives us the words of this prayer, Come, Lord Jesus, my spirit is troubled and my heart is weighed down. Come, Lord Jesus. But, but Revelation also offers us the art, the images, the words. Bible's prayer gives way to another possibility that everything that's gone wrong with the world, let's call it the old age, the old creation, the old order of things, has given way to the new age, to the new creation. The age breaking in among us, even if we can't quite see it fully realized yet. I want to invite you to, 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 uh, to see two visions that John, the poet, prophet, artist, paints for us in Revelation. Two of them. I want us to catch a glimpse of what John thinks is possible because I believe that the prayer he invites us to pray, come Lord Jesus, he gives us so that in praying that prayer, we are open to the new world that God is bringing Let's call it heaven, not just a destination to which we are going, but a reality that's coming towards us. You hear the difference? Not just a destination to which we are going, but a reality. These two visions, to be fully in the world as it is, and to be fully in the world as it will be. So, stay with me here for just a minute. The first vision I want to invite you to see, the painting across the sky, is one that's probably most familiar to you. Of all the crazy stuff going on in the book of Revelation, we're trying to figure out what is going on with all of that, this one seems to make a little more sense, and so it's more familiar to us. It's the throne room vision in Revelation 4 and 5. You're probably a little bit familiar with this one. This is, John says... I saw an angel, he led me into this room, and I saw there before me the throne, the throne of God, and one sitting upon the throne. And there were gathered around the throne 24 little thrones, right? All the people of God, the 24 little thrones. The people of God from long ago, those 12 tribes that first constituted the people of God, the 12 disciples. Last I checked, my math is not good, but 12 and 12 is 24. It's all the people of God gathered around the throne of God. God sitting enthroned, sovereign, reigning over all of this. And there, with all those gathered around the throne of God who reigns over all of this, are four living creatures who say, Holy. Holy. Holy, holy. They never stop saying, holy, holy, holy. There is 
None like you. You are set apart. You reign over all of this. You are holy. And they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come from beginning to end and at every point along the way, holy. It is the sovereignty of God. And those who proclaim it. But notice this. I don't know as I've passed through this throne room vision a number of times as I've looked upon this painting of heaven's throne that I've noticed before that there is also in this image stretching out before the throne a seat. A seat. It's the presence of that seat that I think is most interesting because do you know in the story that the Bible tells that the image of water carries so much meaning. In the beginning, the waters are the seat of chaos and disorder out of which God creates and brings order. He draws back the waters. That the waters come at the flood as the return of disorder and chaos. That water in the story that's told in Scripture and in images that come later in Revelation represent evil. All kinds of evil, terrible things come up out of the sea. So get this. Here you have this throne room. God seated on the throne. The people of God gathered around. These living uh, creatures, four living creatures declaring that God is holy. You and I gathered around declaring that God is sovereign and reigns over all of this. Then why? Tell me why? Is there so much evil still in the throne room? I think it's interesting because when you turn this vision forward in chapter 5, there is John right in the middle of this scene. John, the poet. And if, you're, if, you've, uh, if you've not caught the clever play on the John Mayer and John of Patmos, let me point that out to you. I want to get credit for that. There's John of Patmos who's seeing all of this. God enthroned, holy, and yet the presence of so much evil. And he knows there has to be some resolution to this. And so there's a scroll. And John sees the scroll, but the scroll is sealed up. Seven seals, completely sealed. And that matters because if there were someone who could unseal this scroll, we could resolve this dilemma. And yet there's no one to unseal the scroll. And so what does John do? John weeps. It says in Revelation 5 that John, John says, I wept, and I wept, and I wept. Stand in this place where we believe that God reigns over all things, and yet there is so much not right, is precisely where the people of God find themselves. We don't pretend as if it doesn't exist. We don't withdraw ourselves from it. We stand with, with John and bear within ourselves the brokenness of the world in weeping. It is the first posture of a people who have named Jesus as Lord and who believe that God's eternal purpose is being worked out in the world. It's the first posture of God's people to be fully in the world 
as it is. And to tell the truth about that, it is to weep with the world in its brokenness. Not to withdraw from it, not to preach to it, not to try and fix it, but to weep with it. We are human. All of us. Those who believe and those who don't. Those of us who believe that our sin has been covered by the grace of God and those who have yet to discover that. We are all of us. We all of us share in the brokenness of this world in our first posture as heaven-bound people. Is to stand in the world in its brokenness and to weep with the world. Do you realize how much power there is in the testimony of weeping? To believe in heaven and long for a second coming of Jesus is not some escape clause. It doesn't make us immune from the world and its brokenness. It's not to hunker down in our church buildings and protect ourselves from it. It is to long for more, and it is to stand with the world in its longing for more. Isn't that what Jesus did in His first coming? Isn't that what Paul knows when Paul says, feels in the deepest part of his being that the whole creation groans, it's in travail, in labor? It is the first move that this vision invites us. And even when the voice will say to John next, don't weep anymore, John will turn to see the lion of the tribe of Judah who has become a lamb looking as though slain. A lamb looking as though slain. To weep with a broken world. That's the first vision. And I'm going to try and talk about the second and about this much time, which doesn't do the second vision justice, but here it is. The second vision in Revelation comes toward the end. In chapter 18 and 19, 4 and 5, the throne room vision, 18 and 19, this other vision that's much less familiar, and I think I know why it's much less familiar, because in this vision, there's an angel again. And the angel, John says, is making an announcement. And you know what the angel is saying? The angel is looking out over all this, and say, fall. It's all falling. It's all coming down. It doesn't look like that. It looks pretty stable, Babylon does. That's the language John uses. Babylon, Rome, whatever the prevailing power structures in the world that you inhabit, it's all apart from God, it's all coming down. After this, I saw an angel that sang, Fallen. And then John describes for us these things. These are woes. He talks about the kings, the rulers, the leaders who have been entrusted with power over people between nation states. I'm not making this stuff up. It's in Revelation 18. Check it out for yourself. The kings 
And he says, they've become corrupt and they're no more. And then he talks about the merchants, the people who trade goods and services to build prosperity. And then he talks about shipmasters and seafarers, which means the people who make commerce possible, trade possible. I'm not making this stuff. You think he's just making this stuff up. I'm not. He says that when those things, leaders and the production of goods and services and the commerce that moves the goods and services have been aligned in such a way so that some people gain prosperity and flourish and other people know no life, that it's all coming down. Well, that's, that's trouble for me. I don't know about you, but I'm deeply troubled by that because quite honestly, I've got a lot at stake in the current arrangement of things. Don't you? We're doing all right. Look at us here. So when you tell me, if John means to say that all that's coming down, that doesn't feel like good news to me, which is what happens in chapter 19. They break out in the hallelujah chorus at this news. It doesn't feel like good news to me. It feels like bad news. You know why? Because I will confess to you. I like that ordering of things because it benefits me, even if it doesn't benefit someone else. If you're going to see this vision and you're going to pray this prayer, we're going to believe in heaven and we're going to believe that Jesus is coming again. Let's be honest that the, we're going to have to get serious about, John would say, leaving Babylon. Can we confess that we are too at home in Babylon? That in fact, we are the recipients that confession we are too home in Babylon, turns us towards God's inbreaking new creation. From weeping with John at the brokenness of this world, something is not right, to confession that we are too at ease in Babylon, to be called up to participate in God's good new creation that's coming towards us where all people and all things flourish, where God redeems all of this, where there is a wholeness that emanates from the life of God and the thing is set right. A world ordered where people from every tribe and language and people and nation are assembled before God's throne. That's Revelation 4. A world in which all of a sudden the power structures that have held sway crumble and fall so that we can live into something that looks more like God's desire for the world. Crazy stuff. Revelation. But me and all my friends, we know and trust and pray for a world to come like that. For the world to change. 
why we say and pray alongside all those believers who've come before us, from those first Christians who gathered in rooms much smaller than this, around a table to break bread and to share a cup, and to remember the death and resurrection of Jesus. They prayed every time they were at the table. They prayed this word, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. They were able to pray it consistently, persistently, with passion and conviction. Come, really, we're not kidding, God. Come, because we don't fit here. This is not your world. Not the world that you desire. Come, Lord Jesus. This is our prayer. As a heaven-bound people, as a people who know that heaven is moving towards us, that God is redeeming all of this. It's the prayer that we pray today. Would you bow with me now? God, we come before you and we fall to our knees. And through tears, and through fear, and through anxiety about the unease, the dis-ease, the undoneness of this world, we manage to find the words again to pray, come for Jesus. We pray over those who suffer terrible accidents that break the body and break the spirit of those who know and love them. We pray, finding these words again, come, Lord Jesus. And in this world where it seems things are coming completely unhinged, it's not only somewhere else a long ways from here, but it's right here. We don't know what to make of it. And our fear turns to anger. We lash out. We pray that you would drive us to our knees again and fill our eyes with tears. That we would dwell deeply in the brokenness of this world so that you might place upon our lips again the words, Come, Lord Jesus. Come.